If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. assumption that immigrants took the jobs that British people didn't want. And that is kind of true, although it's more true to say that as factories and mills and other uh, large concerns modernised, new jobs were created, which were low-grade, low-skilled jobs, and it was very hard to find people to take them. That was Claire Wills discussing post-war immigration into Britain. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with Claire Wills of Princeton University. Claire is the author of a new book entitled Lovers and Strangers, An Immigrant History of Post-War Britain, which looks at how migrants from across the globe made a new life in this country from the 1940s onwards. She spoke to our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn. Your new book, Lovers and Strangers, aims to reconstruct the varied experiences of many immigrants in post-war Britain through their own eyes, and also it looks at how not only how British society viewed immigrants, but how immigrants viewed British society. Why did you think that this was a really interesting lens through which to look at post-war British society? There are lots of histories of the 1950s that sort of borrow the perspective of the politicians of the 1950s, the idea that we've never had it so good... um, that there's a demise of deference, a kind of growth in consensus politics and so on. And in that story, immigration tends to appear incidentally when there's a kind of crisis. So we hear about the Windrush moment in 1948. 
We hear about the Notting Hill riots in 1958. We might hear about the Smethwick by-election in 1964, which was Peter Griffiths ran on an explicitly racist ticket for the Conservative Party. And we definitely hear about powerlism, the growth of um, powerlism in the late 60s and Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. Um, But I wanted to think about all the bits in between, everyday life for immigrants and migrants. And I make a distinction really between immigrants and migrants because I think particularly at the beginning of the post-war period, people who came did not imagine they were going to stay. They thought of themselves as coming for a few years, that their sense of their future was back home, not in, not in Britain. Um, so I wanted to kind of get underneath the big political story to the smaller, everyday stories of immigrants and migrants, and, as you say, to get to the variety of them. We have a very strong image of Windrush migrants arriving in 1948, so migrants from the Caribbean, or the West Indies as it was then known. In fact, until the mid-50s, that was a tiny, tiny proportion of the um, people who came to Britain to work. There were large numbers of um, Irish migrants who started coming during the Second World War on group work schemes, And right up until 1953, they were being kind of um, courted by British companies and the British government to come and do um, jobs building aerodromes during the war and then afterwards uh, rebuilding factories and so on. But not just the Irish, there there were a number of group work schemes bringing migrants from the camps in Germany, refugee and displaced persons camps, So Ukrainians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Poles. Poles mostly came actually via via the Polish army rather than through the camps. There were also a number of Italians who were courted by the London Brick Company. By the end of the 60s, um, Bedford was 20% Italian and it's because people, the Brick Company had gone to Calabria and employed people there and brought them back in kind of groups. So I wanted to get to the kind of variety of that experience. So you mentioned there about um, the British actively attracting migrants. Can you give us a sense of the state of Britain at this time and why immigration was really crucial to post-war regeneration? Yes, the Ministry of Labour in the immediate post-war period was absolutely panicked about lack of manpower. There are a number of reasons why manpower declined in the immediate post-war years. First of all, women who'd been um, corralled into work wanted to get back out of work, um, and they thought they'd done their bit, thank you very much. Um, So that took a very large number of people out of the workforce. Um, The school leaving age was raised in 1947, which again took a number of people out of the workforce. Um, And it took a a long time for people to be demobbed. So several years before um, people were back and actively working. So the Ministry of Labour was desperate to bring over Irish um, and then people from the camps in Germany. Um, There were also specific 
schemes like the Barbados scheme, which was London Transport looking for um, workers, particularly to be conductors. There's an assumption that immigrants took the jobs that British people didn't want. And that is kind of true, although it's more true to say that there were, as factories and mills and other uh, large concerns modernised, new jobs were created which were low-grade, low-skilled jobs and um, it was very hard to find people to take to work in them. For example, the Yorkshire mills were working on kind of late 19th century uh, machinery and in order to kind of up production, they got new machines in which were very expensive. One of the things about the expense of the machines is that it was not worth turning them off at night. They had to keep going 24 hours and that meant there was a new night shift and a new night shift which you know locals in Rochdale and you know small Lancashire towns had no intention of working the night shift and so Indians and Pakistanis were you know people went to India and Pakistan in order to encourage people to come and work and there were Punjabi leaflets Leaflets created in Punjabi saying, we'll give you £10 if you can find someone else to come over and work. So people were really being brought in. It's not exactly jobs that people were moving out of, but new jobs that were unattractive to people who had worked in more modernised factories during the war and were used to mills and factories with toilets, for example, and they didn't want to go and work in kind of grim foundries or they didn't want to work in TB hospitals in the middle of nowhere. They didn't want to be cleaners in mental hospitals. So these jobs were... The Ministry of Labour was desperate for, to get people to do these jobs and the migrants did them. You mentioned earlier about uh, the fact that a lot of migrants in this period didn't see themselves as permanent residents. They thought they'd be there for a couple of years. How did that affect how they assimilated or didn't assimilate into British society? And and why did so many um, migrants end up staying permanently? So it's important to make a distinction between the people, the displaced persons who came from the camps who knew very well that they were coming for good. They could not go home to Poland or the Ukraine or Latvia or Lithuania. Mostly the, the, the countries that they had come from or their areas no longer existed. You know, borders had been changed. Um, and you would think that those groups would have assimilated very quickly because they knew they were going to stay. But in fact, partly to do with language difficulties, they, they tended to marry each other And it's the second generation that um, become fully at home in Britain. With other groups, for example, Caribbean migrants, Irish migrants, Indian and Punjabi migrants, mostly, even though um, some of them are British subjects and some of them aren't, um, mostly they're all economic migrants. They're coming because there is absolutely no work where they live and their migration is to improve life back home. They initially send money back home, but they also imagine that they will eventually move back with their money, start a business, 
improve the farm, dig a well, buy tractors, and so on. So the migration is all directed almost back to the past, back to a past that they would like to be better in the future. And for that reason, there's less emphasis on integrating or assimilating, which is not a word I particularly like, actually. Um, I think there are vast differences between people who come as single, single men in particular, Irish single men coming as labourers through the 1940s and 50s tend to do very badly in terms of well, in terms of their their um, life trajectory. They tend to drink. They tend to uh, have poor physical health. They're working very uh, hard um, in poor conditions. Um, and if they don't marry, they tend to do badly. And they don't that they, they they work with each other. They're quite nomadic, and I, I would say integration is is poor. Um, for people who marry, whether they marry a Brit or they marry one of their own um, and then have children, the integration is, is much smoother. Once you've got children, you're going to the school gate, you're interacting with a lo- quite a you know, much more varied um, spectrum of British society. The other big um, event that changes whether people imagine they're going to stay or not is the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act. This is an act um, brought in by the Macmillan government in order to restrict entry to new Commonwealth migrants. It's pretty much explicitly a colour bar. um, Because, for example, Irish migrants, there are many more of them um, arriving in the late 50s, early 60s, but they don't fall under the Commonwealth Immigrants Act. Um, In that act, a number of categories of migrants were were established. A category migrants were professionals, B category um, kind of semi-professional, and C category were the unskilled migrants. And unskilled migration was practically uh, killed off by the act, which meant that large numbers, particularly of Pakistani and Indian immigrants, could no longer come for a couple of years, earn some money, go home again, live with their family back home, and when the money ran out, come back again to work in the mill. And that meant that people decided to bring their families over. So it, in fact, had almost directly the opposite intention of the Conservative government, which was trying to kind of decrease migration. Um, Migration, for a start in 1961-62, up to the ban, migration, immigration, mushroomed out of all proportion because people were trying to get in before the ban uh, in July 1962. And then afterwards, um, huge numbers of dependents moved this huge, huge um, increase. And it meant that people settled. What did those arriving in post-war Britain think of the country that they found themselves in and the people who lived there? Well, as I say, I wanted to get away from um, looking at immigrants from the perspective of the host community. Very often they're thought of as problems, um, bringing crime, increasing queues at the 
um, doctor's surgery, taking up primary school places, uh, being benefit scroungers, and so on. Um, there's an enormous amount of source material if you want to tell that story, because lots of British people complained about it a lot. They wrote to Enoch Powell, they um, wrote to their um, MPs, MPs talked about it in Parliament, there's lots of police reports about that kind of thing. To get to the other side of the story is harder, because what you have to find is kind of first-hand accounts by immigrants of how they experience day-to-day life. Um, and a lot of that is, um, a lot of the focus there is on tiny things. Um, I, I was very lucky to come across a wonderful, uh, it sounds bizarre, epic poem by a um, Punjabi migrant to Wolverhampton who arrived in 1958. Um, it's, he, he was from quite a low caste, um, but he was obviously very highly educated. And he, th- there's a, a, a genre called a, a, a kisser, Q-I-S-S-A, um, which is um, a, an epic love story, usually, in, in the Punjab. Um, the, the most famous one is as famous as Romeo and Juliet. Um, and this guy, who came to work in a foundry in Wolverhampton, wrote a kisser about his experience arriving in Wolverhampton, um, being taken to the pub, being having to live in this kind of overcrowded house, having a relationship with a local white woman, getting used to drinking, his wife finding out back home about his relationship. Um, the wife then has kind of a series of stanzas saying, how can you do this to me? I'm living with my mother-in-law and you've stopped sending money home. This is a total nightmare. Bring me with you to England. And she arrives in England. And it's, he wrote it over about 12 years and he, he used to perform it in the pub. So the local Punjabis were very familiar with it and he, they, they would add bits. Uh, for example, by the 1970s, he's taking his kids back to the Punjab and they are appalled. They can't believe the number of flies, the kind of way that homeless people are treated uh, and so on. Um, and it's that kind of story that I wanted to get to in the book. Um, this guy, Maddo Ram is his name, is just one example. Um, it's hard to find, easier to find with... Um, the West Indian community, in fact, who were very early on um, quite highly educated migrants and obviously speaking in English and writing in English, uh, whereas Indian, Pakistani, Italian, Polish migrants uh, might be narrating their experiences or writing letters home or or whatever, Um, but it's not in English and much of it is lost. Can you give us any other examples of the types of sources or specific sources that you drew on? Some of the sources had to be British sources. For example, I, there's a long series of reports created from 1953 to 1955 or 6 um, by a Home Office working party into, quote, the problems caused by coloured immigrants to our country. So it's explicitly couched in terms of problems. 
um, and it's explicitly racist or, or racialized. So they're not asking about the problems caused by Irish people or Polish people in our country. Um, in fact, the reports are fascinating because the reports that they ask a bunch of different um, authorities. So, for example, um, the Ministry of Labour, um, the National Insi Assistance Board, and so on. And mostly, they write back saying there are no problems. They're great. They work really hard. They don't use up much national assistance. Um, the police, however, are looking for crime in particular. They still don't find it very easy to find crime. Um, there's one statistic, apparently, that uh, you know, 0.01% of crime is caused by Indians in Birmingham in 1966. I mean, a tiny, tiny proportion. People have come to work. Even though you're looking through the lens of British documents, um, you can get a sense of um, how people are living through, through, through the description. So, for example, I came across a very elaborate passport scam that um, the police in Leeds and Sheffield took ages trying to work out what, what it meant. Um, people were coming from Pakistan uh, on forged passports um, bringing £45, which was as much as they could bring out, and handing it over immediately to some, you know, a fella in Thomas Cook. Um, and it turned out it was money laundering back in Pakistan. It wasn't actually illegal in Britain at all. But through, through documents that you might not imagine you'd find out, um, sort of material about everyday life, if you kind of read it in reverse or sort of up against a mirror, sometimes you can access information. Another source that I found really interesting um, were the Irish handbooks for young Irish immigrants. Yes, yes. Um, I, I, I love them. Um, my mother remembers the, the church kind of giving her advice before she left Ireland in 1948. The nuns saying, beware of the men in the dance halls, they can't keep their trousers up for example. Um, the Catholic Truth Society published little pamphlets that were specially pocket-sized so you could carry with, them with you just in case you forgot how to tell the difference between a Catholic church and a Protestant church, for example, because you obviously didn't want to make the mistake of going into a Protestant one um, and being caught by the enemy. Um, sort of uh, advice on how to avoid uh, women of low repute advice on how to avoid drinking too much, how to maintain your um, weekly devotions, obviously not to forget going to confession and so on. So England wasn't always seen as kind of a, a land of milk and honey by migrants. There were reservations about going there. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the, the, the saddest parts of doing the research was discovering... The, the people who had most hopes were often the people who did worst or found the highest, um, the largest amount of discrimination. So West Indians tended to leave home in an atmosphere of kind of celebration. They were going to the mother country. I was amazed to discover the number of people who, who really believed the, um, the kind of language of the mother country, that they belonged, 
that once, once they arrived, they would feel a sense of belonging. They had been educated within uh, a British um, school education. They'd been educated to think that they were part of the culture. And they, they, they were hopes and dreams that were, for the most part, cruelly crushed. The Irish, on the other hand, who literally could go back and forth every week if they liked, if they had five pounds for the boat, left home in an atmosphere of absolute dread, resignation, panic, misery, tragedy. The stories of weeping as the train left Mayo or Sligo and because it was as though you would never come back. And at, at some level, that's, that's a kind of folk memory of emigration during, the, during and after the famine in, in Ireland where emigration really was a door shut on the past. But at some level, I think the Irish experience or the Irish take on, on migration, even though it was terribly easy to go back and forth in the 1950s, that, that kind of tragic take was more, more true to the experience because door, the door did shut on the past once you left it. You could never go back. I mean, none of us can ever go back to our past. Childhood ends and we move on. But for most of us who live, who continue to live in the same place that we were brought up, there isn't such a kind of forced and aggressive um, split between past and present and future. Um, And so in some sense, the Irish were right the past was over once they got on that train. They could go back home, but they would never properly belong back home. One of the things that, you know, I, I end the book with some reflections on migrants' relationship with home after they have settled and acknowledged that they have settled in Britain. I think that's, it's very different from the way um, contemporary immigration takes place because the group the period I'm talking about in the book the 40s 50s and up until the mid 60s was still not I mean obviously Britain had an empire Uh, it was globally connected but migrants were not migration wasn't taking place in what we would now call the global village Um, communication was difficult there were no mobile phones obviously there was no Skype Journeys took a long time. They were expensive. So people left, and they left, even if they imagined they would be going home in a few years. They really left behind a past. And what they had to do was recreate the past in a meaningful way, bring the past with them. And partly that might be through a nostalgic recreation of what their past had been like. Um, certainly, right across all all the communities that I looked at, you can find um, nostalgic constructions, and particularly parents telling their children how wonderful home was. And that's part of the joy of Mado Ram's poem, you know, because they they clearly bring up their kids with this idea of the Punjab as heaven. And when the kids actually get there, they're completely horrified. Um, but another thing that happens as People make money and settle and they, you know, they make a success of their lives in Britain is that they then try to reconnect 
in a different way with home. They've been sending money back to relatives, for example, to bore wells or buy tractors or buy the shop or, or whatever, um, or to pay for um, university education. But they also want to root themselves back home. So there's a phenomenon of people building houses in the Caribbean, in Ireland, certainly in Mirpur, in Punjab, in Silet, building houses which they will probably never live in. But it's a way of acknowledging a connection still with home. Um, many people will end up being buried back home, even though their, their lives, their lives have, have been lived here. How can we see the influence of these immigrants on British society more widely and how they shaped British society? Well, there are the obvious things that, you know, sort of objects uh, or, or practices that we have got from migrants like pizza, ice cream, um, nice jackets, Italian clothing, um, swing music, jazz, all of those kind of, uh, you, you know, the food, the cultural, um, cultural practices. But I, I actually think it's, although those things are really interesting, you know, Indian curries, for example, although those things are really interesting, I, I think the most important thing probably that Britain has gained from from being a community a, a culture that immigrants wanted to contribute to is a sense of their own difference what they learn and they might not want to learn it and they might find it hard to learn but what they learn is is about difference and a, an expansion of the possibility of experience and many people i think um particularly in the in the 50s, um, wanted to shut down, didn't want to change their experience, didn't want to open up to different ways of living, different cultural um, mores. And, you know, part of the story in this period is a story of increasing racism. So uh, what might have begun in the 40s as a kind of xenophobia about outsiders sort of narrows and becomes more particularly focused on colour as, as the, the years go by. The late Stuart Hall tells a story about moving from London to the West Midlands in 1964. The Smethwick by-election has just happened, or is just about to happen. Um, and... He talks in interviews, or he did talk in interviews, um, about a kind of appalling atmosphere in the West Midlands, a kind of openly racist atmosphere that he said he had not encountered in other places. He was trying to find housing with his white wife, the historian Catherine Hall, and you know he said, only there did I have the door slammed in my face. Um, and he, talk, he, he talks about how he was not surprised that powerlism um, grew from the West Midlands, but that what he encountered there was um, a community that felt it had been left behind. 
um, a t- disenfranchised people, and not just young people, but um, people at all, all levels feeling that economically uh, they have been left behind. And he calls it an, a historical resentment that latched on to race. One of, the, one of the most depressing things in researching the book for me was that again and again, for example, after the 1958 riots in Notting Hill, governments would say, right, we need to pour money into these areas. Uh, the housing stock is terrible. The school provision is poor. Um, there is no race relations, dis- uh, discrimination laws, and so on. And they talk and nothing happens. So five years later, we can get the Smethwick by-election. And no attempt has been made to, to deal with kind of underlying economic feelings of disenfranchisement. Why do you think that examining these stories and about the experiences of post-war immigrants is still pressing or important or relevant in 2017? We just had a referendum on Brexit. According to a lot of people, immigration was one of the main issues in that referendum. If that's the case, I think it's extremely important that we know what the history of immigration and migration to Britain um, has meant and how it has operated. I find it... I think the word is dispiriting, that much of the rhetoric that is used about migration today, um, about lack of resources, for example, about NHS resources, school places, benefits, and so on, that's exactly the same rhetoric that was used all the way through the 40s and the 50s. I don't think it can hurt for us to recognise that and to see that um, perhaps if we're using the same rhetoric in quite different circumstances, um, there's something wrong with the rhetoric. That was Claire Wills. Lovers and Strangers, An Immigrant History of Post-War Britain is out later this month in the UK, published by Alan Lane. And in the US, it will be released next month by Penguin. And you can read a written version of this interview in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also inside this month's edition, we have articles on Viking battles, the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, medieval Europe's unholiest monk, and a whole lot more. Look out for our September issue in all good newsagents and in our many digital formats. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out 
with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Before we go, here's a reminder that tickets for our History Weekend events are currently on sale. The events take place in Winchester from the 6th to 8th of October and then York from the 24th to 26th of November. Check out historyweekend.com for all the details and to find out how you can come along. OK, well that's about it for today, but please do join us again on Thursday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.